0: Drama on One, Sundays at 8pm, rte.ie forward slash drama on one, drama on one. Hello and welcome to the Clarence Hotel in Dublin and to a special programme of John Kelly in public to celebrate 50 years of the Dublin Theatre Festival. The special guest of this 50th Dublin Theatre Festival is the world-renowned theatre director Peter Brook. Peter, you're very welcome. Peter, musicians often say that man sang before he spoke and we know about the cave drawings and all of that. Do you have any idea when man first may have started to play act or come up with some form of drama? What's behind that question, which is very
1: important, you put it for the very first time, so I think about it for the first time, and I think what, in our present experience can be opened more by sound than by word? At what moment does this great possibility of one human being communicating with another, first of all by a grunt, then by an ouch, and then by a turn itself into a need to express itself through two or three sounds linked together which become a melody, And at what point does that melody need to be developed by what we call a word? And what moment does this Tower of Pisa come to a point when the conceptual aspect of the word becomes so heavy that the whole tower collapses? Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, people often talk about uh, how mankind developed these different processes and techniques for... Spiritual reasons for healing reasons all of mm-hmm. those things in the very early days of theater What do you mm-hmm. think it was about was it was it more than simply a form of of entertainment? Obviously, it was more to it than that No, but once again, I'm forced to come straight back to where we are now Today everyone knows
1: that you and I sitting here with our clothes and our veneer of being what we are carry the whole of prehistory organically in ourselves And you can say that all theatre should and needs continually to come back to the very good questions you're putting. One has to all the time recognise that the finely chiselled phrase is well-spoken, is not the greatest form of an evolved theatre. And in fact, this, when I began work, was considered that an actor was there to deliver beautifully... Beautiful words because one couldn't go any farther except having him his hair well cut, well shampooed and putting him in a good costume. And that was the top of theatre art. Gradually, the revolt against that has come to a point where today you'll find, and I'm sure, in the Dublin Theatre Festival there must be already some strong examples of young companies who go back to the primitive cry, grunt, shout, grab, hit, as their basic language. So I think that what we need to do is to see how these qualities can coexist, where they blur one another or cancel one another out, and where genuinely they
0: enhance one another. At what point did you come upon this, stumble upon this, discover this. At what point did you, did you adopt this as your, as your approach and what would be your approach in future? I think I started
1: by an intuitive recognition that it is like all of life, it is all about energy. So the first thing that excited me in theatre was the presence of energy and the first thing that disappointed me as young going to the theatre was the lack of energy the static nature. And so, to me, boring or not boring were matters of energy, of vitality. Through that, it led me to have a real interest and excitement into plunging into every form, physical theater, young theater, old theater, classical theater, speech theater, opera, musical comedy, all of these to explore with joy just how far imagery, sound, and word could take us. And then gradually, through all these intoxicating experiences, which is what being young is all about, which is not censoring yourself, not censoring others, but plunging into the sea of everything, gradually I began to see, and this again happened through experience and by itself, some things fall away as being less interesting, less necessary, and so today I'm labelled to my horror with this awful thing of being a minimalist as though, and I think that Sam suffered from the same thing of being labelled somebody who through puritanism and austerity is a killjoy. It's not that. It's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. One sees that there is a fuller joy and a deeper joy often with less than with more.
0: I can imagine, though, when you began to incorporate all of this thinking into the work, there must have been a lot of opposition. And if there was opposition, where did it come from? Did it come from some kind of establishment or did it come from actors themselves, who, as you say, up until that point, were happy enough to be well-shampooed and wearing a good suit and speaking the words very well?
1: No, I didn't come across much opposition. The opposition was always from the middle band, young actors, of course, open to throw themselves into everything. And fortunately, very early on, playing with very fine actors and great actors, the mark of greatness was, again, this openness and simplicity. But in between, there was this horrifying middle what really the word middle always carries whether it's middle age middle class that middle of the middle actor who's the great majority who cling to their way of doing it the way of doing it the way we've always done it i had horrifying experiences with middle of the way stage manager who would say but this is the way we've always done it
0: you can't do that but that was part of the game and I recall in in The Empty Space, you you mentioned the actor who thought that one day he would play Hamlet was Mm -hmm. was an actor full of energy, and then you had the actor who knew that he would never play Hamlet and knew he was going to be sort of stuck where he was for the rest of his life, and it must have been been very hard on those actors, I'd imagine. But for you, the young actor who thought he would one day play Hamlet must have been very exciting. Oh, yes.
1: And the... Very old actor, still playing Romeo, was exciting as well. And the middle-of-the-way actor who genuinely could accept his place. Yeah, everything was possible
0: again. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk for a little about, about actors. Hmm. Um, it seems to anyone who isn't an actor, an extraordinary calling, an extraordinary profession, and very mysterious. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think there is a mystery to it, or is it a matter of... It's a job, get on with it. Today we have both
1: coexisting, and it's a tragedy that highly talented people, because of the rising cost of living everywhere, very early, are no longer even consciously making compromises. They're plunging into a second-rate world in which they accept. You know, I can remember 30 or 40 years ago, it was... Something that an actor would suffer from when he felt that, because he was out of a job, he was accepting doing shit on TV in shitty conditions and would rebel against this and would be humiliated by it. Not at all. Today, brilliant young talents leave drama school and are thrilled to be offered a a TV series right away, which is blocks their talent going in a much more fruitful direction. So that certainly is very much the situation now.
0: I suppose they're attracted for different reasons, but do you think it's celebrity money? Con-
1: no, I mean, those are all intertwined. That mm. is part of the present-day world situation. That one can't deny it. Now, I think that being an actor, there is something very mysterious. An actor for reasons that one cannot understand, has a part of his deep nature, and I think you can say this about a poet and a writer as well, something that has remained way open and is not completely stifled by education and environment, all these things which we know are the real factors that create a personality, something remains untouched in the core. Now, the actor at the same time can wish to develop this because he hates his personality. And a lot of actors have this very painful situation. They hate themselves. So they survive through living artificial lives. So that is part of the actor's possibility and the actor's tragedy. And in French, you have the two ghastly words One is that character acting, an actor is there to character act, it's called a composition. And the composition means that it is building an artifact in which you hide. It isn't from you. And then the other, even worse phrase, is that it's in common theater jargon. An actor says, oh, is this a good part with which I can defend myself? He uses this to mean, is it a good part for me? Is it a good part in which I can survive, show myself, have good opportunities? But the French old word is to defend myself. Now, that is one side of acting. The other side of acting is that an actor, an ordinary mediocre human being like everyone else, has moments in which he can get almost to a Buddhahood. I mean, he can go beyond. Anything, not with the painful work of a Buddhist monk who in a Japanese Zen monastery will spend 40, 50 years of tremendous tasks and self-interrogation for a moment of freedom. The actor can leap into this and with a good part and the help of the other actors and the audience can suddenly touch these moments of incredible freedom in which his deepest self shines through and that there's a terrible price. He reaches this without those 40, 50, 60 years of hard work but it lasts, a moment like that may last occasionally a whole performance of Grace but more likely ten minutes in the middle of a play where he has that marvelous feeling. Simon Callow in his book on actor describes beautifully that particular thing, that moment of absolute grace when suddenly there's this feeling of being yourself and yet the part and within the audience and in the conditions of the stage and yet a total freedom. But that and the tragedy is that the, the price an actor pays is this thing that I've written about I think in various occasions which struck me very much when I was young When a young person wishes to look around him, his family, his friends, and sees where is the old person I can go to for advice whose wisdom comes from the experiences of his life, he won't go to an actor because an actor can play the wisest, deepest roles that exist, but nothing stays. It's the marvellous freedom... Of the theatre,
0: that at the end of the performance is all wiped off, and it's the tragedy. I mean, you've worked with people who, who have done that on many, many occasions. Have you been able to, to work out, and you have written about this, you know, is it what people call a gift? Is it a skill? Is it a total mystery? You know, how does We're that free. happen? have said it all. Okay, thank you, i <laughs> I'll good <get that>. Okay. <laughs> it's all of those things. All of those. And if it's a gift, where does the gift come from, do you think? Genetics. <laughs> right. It doesn't come from above or anything. I does spoke
1: it? to a German friend, an actress, yesterday, and I said the word gift in relation to this. And then we both realized that, of course, in German, that me- the word gift means poison. Does it? Wow. So,
0: <laughs> <Poison chalice. laughs> you could see that it's
1: yeah. there in the same sense in English.
0: To relate what you've just said to some of the actors that you've worked with and that we would know, uh, you mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, you know, the, in, in the, fr- the French definitions of, of, of an actor, and it struck me what you had said about, about Olivier mm-hmm. kind of disguising himself all the yes. time. That, that, w- that was curious, because people assume he's the, you know, the greatest actor that ever was, and yet you know, the suggestion that he was simply disguising himself doesn't sound quite as elevated as what you've just described. No, but I think that
1: there, he was the greatest actor anyone has ever known because he was the greatest, most brilliant master of disguise. And he was very conscious of this. He studied different voices for a different part, different false noses for each part, different transformations physically. And so if you go for somebody like a great Renaissance craftsman in Italy, he was the top of the top of great craftsmen. Nobody knew him. I don't think that even his wives ever really knew the true, essential Larry. He hid it. The glimpses I had of it were not particularly warming. He could put on, as a brilliant actor, every sort of charm. He could play warmth. He could play tenderness. But deep down, I didn't believe it. And the opposite, which I've written about just as much, which was John Gilgood. John Gilgood was very bad at disguising himself. He occasionally, in one or two tiny directions, succeeded in playing what you'd call a character, but he was the opposite. He was defenseless. He allowed himself always to be himself. The more the part existed in him, the less he hid behind it and the more his defences, his life defences, his difficulties, all his life problems that we know all about, all gave way. And that's why there was something, on the contrary, radiant. And between John, whom the audience loved, and the John his friends loved, I feel we knew and felt and saw the same person.
0: What was the price, do you think, that uh, you know, someone like Gilgud would have had to pay for that, you know, to sort of be himself all the time? You know?
1: I don't think that there was any conscious price paying. I think that he was born with what, it's unfashionable to use such a word, but what today one could still call a noble nature. And there is, you know, all today behaviorists and psychologists uh, turn around this question of nature and nurture, but in fact, genetics are beginning to make it fashionable again to recognize that nobody is born as a clean slate on which he or she writes their own autobiography. The genetic streak and the aristocracy is again a word that has so many meanings. I mean, it is the worst of colonial oppression, the worst of snobbery, the worst of superiority, and at the same time, the sense of the leisure and the tradition cultivating something that becomes a genetic hereditary factor, which is a certain sensibility, a certain fineness, of response, visually, artistically, humanly, and that was inborn in in Gielgud, and he luckily also had inborn him enough courage not to wish to hide or destroy
0: it. Let me ask you about one other actor, because just in preparation for this, I watched King Lear again, and was was just amazed by... By Paul Scofield, but but equally amazed by the fact that I know it's a movie, and I know he's he's in a trailer, and I know you know it's cut and it's just stop, mm. and you know I I just don't, can't imagine how someone can slip in and out of as I assume he had to that part. I mean yes. he's not he's not on stage for a couple of hours. He's he's hanging around. I'd imagine. To me,
1: one of the great mysteries I've ever encountered was as we shot. Seeing Paul when I'd say well, t- take this scene right out of the middle of the play be sitting there chatting, joking having the last touches put to his false beard that had to be put in there not as a glued on beard but hair by hair and so the makeup man who adored doing this would be up to the last minute sticking little fine hairs here and plucking them out and to pass the time, the two of them would be chatting, laughing, and gossiping, and then I'd say, Paul, please, and he'd come and sit with the camera. Hardly two seconds of inner preparation, if that, and then I'd say action. And he would pick up this giant cycle of King Lear's entire life and destiny, bang in the middle just like that, until I said, cut. It was gone. And that, to me, is the image that I can't explain, that opens up the entire mystery, human mystery of acting, that possibility. And what I'd say what I would add to it, what amazes me, my brother was a marvelous psychiatrist, and so I knew through him other people in the psychoanalytical milieu. And to see how almost every actor of a certain quality can do in just like that in a flash what takes the best psychoanalyst perhaps 20 years which is to plunge into the deepest and
0: hidden corners of a person who isn't themselves in the light of that as a director how do you how do you handle people like that I mean do you Do you make allowances for them that you wouldn't make for regular human beings? Do you cajole them? Do you get angry with them? Do you shout at them? I mean, I'm just curious how you deal with people like that who are kind of special.
1: I think you start from the point of view that every human being is special, that you yourself, as director, don't know more than they do. But all one tries to do, there's only one way of working with actors, is to create enough of a relationship directly between one and one, and then as a group for which everything can come into play in the first days, exercises, experiments, triangles, so that the actor has confidence in what is going on in this particular enterprise. At this moment, the actor who, like every human being, hasn't got confidence like neither you or I have particular confidence before we start to talk, and the aim, your aim with me is to make me feel that I can talk freely to you, and me to feel that I can say things you're interested to hear, and this is the process. And then gradually, as that process develops, there should be enough confidence for a certain moment, the actor, to go through such a difficult moment that he can suddenly cry out in fury and can accept the director saying something very sharp but not often. Normally we're there to listen to one another. He has an idea. I don't believe it but I say try it and it suggests something to me or I'm convinced. I have an idea the actor, the stupid actor with whom you can't Work or the old-fashioned opera singer will say no, it can't be done that way. Well, then you say shit and you give him. You, and you, I've learned in opera, in fact, that there you do shout. There is such an ancient fascistic tendency coming through the German opera world that if you want to be respected, you don't say gently. Don't you think it might be a good idea to try it after all? You say. Don't you dare argue with me. I'm telling you, this is what you must do. And they car at once. And the great tenor is, they are doing what you want to immediately. Those days are beginning to disappear. And you can treat young singers exactly like actors, which is that you work together and you know you're looking for something difficult together. But on the whole, it's a climate of confidence in which there can be moments of depression, despair and anger, and healing moments. Can you use the word healing a little bit?
0: The, the, the healing thing, and I mentioned that at the start, um, for audiences, that's possible, and mm. yet it seems that it doesn't happen very often, almost like the strike rate of a successful piece, you know, it's, it's quite low. Mm. When it happens, it's extraordinary. What is the ultimate kind of moment when it does happen? What do you think happens when, when it works? I
1: think that, the, first of all, everyone concerned without talking about it all the time but must recognize that this is our aim. The aim, the curve of a performance is to start on an everyday level and gradually reach a point in which some door opens and something floods in that nourishes the human being so that when you leave. You've gone through a hearing process, and I think that the mystery of Greek tragedy was to show that showing tragedy as something inevitable, and that you go towards it with a feeling of pain and horror, and it's confirmed, and you see you are up against the inevitable side of human nature and life. Approached in a certain way, and that's the whole question, you emerge not as you do when you watch on TV something about Rwanda or something about Darfur. And what you do when you walk away from the screen, your inner disgust at human beings, human institutions, ourselves, is reinforced. Nothing is healed. And with Greek tragedy, the aim occasionally reached, even today, is, ah, you face the worst with courage, and something has dropped
0: away, and you see that life, and not death, is the healer. This next question, in a sense, brings us back, but I think it will bring us forward again pretty quickly to Beckett, and, and Brecht, and Dostoevsky, and various other people. I attended a, a production of Long Day's Journey into Tonight, and Mr. Tyrone, as you know in that play, mm. says all you need is Shakespeare. He's telling his son, you don't need to know mm. anything else. Know your Shakespeare and you'll be fine. Now. It does seem sometimes that Shakespeare is so monumental, mm-hmm. that you could stay within Shakespeare forever. I think that
1: there is no explaining something that's a world phenomenon, which is that Shakespeare is not the greatest writer, the best writer. He's something apart. It's, he's not the top of the pyramid, it's apart. And what is so extraordinary in Shakespeare is that he, he's invisible. Nobody, although there are scholars who give their lives to it, can say what Shakespeare, what he said, what he looked like, what he wanted, what his views were. No, he's way beyond that. And so he is this incredible mirror, kaleidoscopic mirror, of all the different levels of human life, from the outside, far outside, lowest, step by step through to the most secret, the most intimate, the most the highest inner experience, all put together in one s- extraordinarily rich scrambling form. I think the nearest to that in a way is Dostoevsky because I think the greatest play ever written is King Lear because it has everything in it and I think the greatest novel is The Brothers Karamazov. And, and so There's an approach. For me, having again early on for pure joy done every sort of play, including low farces and everything, just because I love them all just as much. Gradually, my interest has been always coming back to the Shakespearean model, but with an absolute conviction that our job today is to recognize the model and then knowing that we can't go ourselves with our own means very far in that direction, try to go in that direction. And that's why I feel that Apart from Chekhov, who in a minor way was that, and Beckett in a very hidden, secret way touched on that, I find, have found very few authors who today, I would feel, l- are looking in so many directions at once and trying to go beyond themselves, fed by life. I mean, Peter Weiss was one, mm. although I wouldn't for a moment call him a Shakespeare. But his aim was was Elizabethan. his aim was Shakespearean. And if from a certain moment, which was really from when I started the work of our international center, I started looking in different directions, it was, on the one hand, towards something like the Mahabharata, which is a beyond Shakespearean epic work. And on the other hand, material, which doesn't come from one person's imposing his view of life. And so I've made this choice while I go and see plays of writers with great joy, present-day writers and the Irish writers particularly who I greatly love and admire their work. But for the work that we're doing, to me the great interest is working from documentary material as a starting point because from documents, from things that are real-life recorded impressions and conversations, you get to something which to me is the essence of theatre, which is going beyond any one person's viewpoint. And what seems to me is the great difference between Shakespeare and great writer like Ibsen, for instance, why today I wouldn't dream of trying to do a play of Ibsen, is that when you do a play of Ibsen, either you do the very modern thing, which is uh, to go right against the author and f- f- farce it, mm. and then there's no point in doing it, or you obey the Ibsen vision, in which case you and a group of actors are serving the single view. You're becoming the spokespeople of one point of view. That, I think, is fine in other forms, but not in the theater. And so that's why in a theater, to me, the image of an audience that's in the round, even though often you can't put the audience in the round, but that image of the participating audience is very different from the audience put by the author and the director into a condition where you're looking at the viewpoint which the scenery, which the lighting, and the music, which the words are there to reinforce of one view, and that's why you quote Brecht but while I admired greatly Brecht as a human being, I knew and saw his own productions which were so fabulously theatrical, nothing to do with the idea of a cold intellectual writer, Brecht was something quite different. I wouldn't dream of touching a play of break because he couldn't get rid of being the teacher who writes. He even used the words the Lehrstück, the teaching play, to show these poor buggers in the audience what's right and what's wrong from a political point of view. And that to me is alien to what the theater are It's to bring contradictions into life and let people draw their own conclusions. And that's all through Shakespeare. He doesn't Himself, Only bad actors and bad directors underline who are the good and who are the bad people. Shakespeare well, never
0: the Some of the, the, more, the more amenable characters at the start turn out to be some of the nastiest. Exactly. That's, yeah. what, the, what other line, actually, from Long Day's Journey into Night, and I have to put which this to m- you... Which must be very fine. It's very but remarkable. one of the lines of Mr. he suggests that Shakespeare was an Irish Catholic.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what say you to that? What I say to that, that... I was in Russia when somebody from one of the southern republics, sort of Islamic Mongol republics, stood up in the audience and said, in Persian, the word peer is a wise man. And we all know that, in the whole Arab world, the word sheikh is a religious leader. Isn't it clear that this was a clear indication that this man, who came from a secret Islamic tradition, was writing under an assumed name, and he was giving a Clear signal to humanity that Shakespeare is not an English name, but it is the name of. But he hides the fact that it's a wise old sheikh who's writing these play. Uh, he was an Irish Catholic, we know that. There we are. So you see, catholic <laughs> Islam, at <laughs> once the death of one another's throats.
0: What I haven't asked you about yet, Peter, uh, and, and briefly, I suppose, uh, the movies. I remember being at school and being shown *Lord of the Flies* by. A teacher who obviously didn't realise it was certificate X at the time. I think when it was. Yes, the um, kids went to Yeah, see it. but we, we saw it. We saw it in school. Um, you're, you, how do you feel about the movies as as as, as a as a, a processor, as as something with potential? I mean, compared to what you clearly believe about the theatre and the stage.
1: If any night of the week, I have um, a night off. I will always go for preference to a movie than to a theatre. It's as simple as that. And why is that? Why? Because it's more fun, because it's more alive. But today, I must say that I am very, very unlikely to choose any big blockbuster, because I think they are becoming, unfortunately, more and more and more conventional, predictable, the story, the situation, that, not very. Sometimes I go to a big Hollywood film for the sheer joy of seeing such expertise. I mean, it's it's so stunning that you can't not look at it that with great- Would you make a point, for instance, of of going to the new James Bond movie or things like that, would you make make a point? No, because I've seen all that, sure. And I mean, even with the Harry Potter, and today, Again, it's happened in five years. Today, special effects are so amazing that they're no longer amazing. So what? Mm. So today, I would go to see almost any marginal film, whether it's an offbeat marginal American or English or Irish film, or on the contrary, one from Taiwan, one from Iran. All those places,
0: interesting movies are coming from. When you were growing up did you watch, you know, cowboy movies, detective movies Oh, cowboy
1: movies, yes. Loved them. Those were
0: my first love. And very often these were great. These were great actors, many of them. Oh yes. Do do you recall, you know, your favorite actors from, from the movies? Were you a Robert Mitchum fan? Were you, you know, John Wayne fan? I don't know. Well, it was Tom Mix. <laughs> oh that's going back a bit <laughs> further, isn't it? Yeah. Um, some of these actors were, were greatly underrated, weren't they, because they were seen to be on a production line of movies, but a lot of them were very skilled people. Well, if you really want to look at skill, just
1: look at any of the old farces, and just by chance, you put on TV and there's an old Chaplin film. Or quite recently, we played with our actors in Siswi Banzi, which is the African play we've been doing, and we played the Marx Brothers, and we looked at several Marx this films with our actors who hadn't seen them. And the skill, the pure skill, that fantastic non-stop skill, what today goes into special effects and somebody doing these amazing leaps into the air and flying over the roofs, there were done for real. And those were a level of timing and skill and precision that is no
0: longer necessary, and so it's a lost art. Now you mentioned the the entertainment value in movies and you would go for for fun on a night off and so on, but do you think that the movies do have to have to some extent a lesser potential than the theater when a, when a movie is really spectacularly good when it really works is it still slightly less than what can be done on 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 the stage
1: Oh yes, because I think that the theater is rediscovering the fact that it is something Small and closed for a small number of people, the sense of this as an elitist process has disappeared, and something more simple and realistic. Theatre has to be, by its very nature, unlike movies that the same movie seen by millions all over the world. The theatre is something, a conversation between two people. It is something very intimate, and because of that, you do find that an act of theatre sometimes, can leave a mark that can be still alive ten years later. Sometimes with movies, not in the same way, because there, the human contact of the theatre makes that possible, and to me, this is the test. I'm sure that there, when the play is over, and you go out, something stays, and I think that is the real test. I think that on the whole, when I go to see a play or a film and see the next morning, or even two hours later, nothing has remained. You've got a memory, but nothing has remained. That means that nothing deeply has been touched. And if a week or two later you go on just thinking or referring to it,
0: something was touched. In the five minutes that are, that are left to us now, oh. um, Empty Space came out in 1968 and it's, 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 uh, everyone reserves the right to, to change their mind and presumably the longer you live, the more you may wish to change your mind and so on. But it seems that very little has, has changed, uh, changed in, in the theatre world that would, would, ask, would, would require you to redress anything you'd written back then. It seems all the, still, still the case. We've got the deadly theatre all around us. We've got all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, where do you think we're at at the moment so many years on in terms of theatre?
1: You're forcing me to quote what I wrote a long, long time ago, which is that there are no criteria other than the life of the actual performance we're talking about. And that's where all those factors are always there. If you go and see a play today, and I come with you, and we're with that audience, and it's deadly, that is still there if we go to another performance and suddenly, at the immediate moment, that's why I end with this immediate, immediate was not the 60s and isn't something ahead of us in the next 50 years if at that moment something happens that we're talking about, it's there so I think that those factors are there but as you can't grasp those factors
0: they're sort of prods and I have to say, when I when I was coming to interview you, the amount of people who, who treated this interview as if I was going to meet a divinity of some sort. Oh. I have, yeah, Aww. I know. But I have to ask you, how how, how do you how do you bear such status in the world? You know, most people don't get that until they're until they're long, long dead. And uh, you know, is it is it is it easily carried? You know, there's
1: only one saving grace in life, which is not to take things too seriously, including yourself. And at the same time, let things be. I can only do my best to, to laugh, to say it's nonsense. It's not doing anybody any service whatsoever. And it's wildly untrue. But
0: that's the best one can do, and leave it at that. Peter, thank you very much. My thanks to Peter Brook, to everyone here at the Clarence Hotel. Sound supervision was by Sean Campbell and the producer was Kevin Reynolds. Drama on 1 Sundays at 8 p.m. rta.ie/drama on 1. Drama on 1.